I enjoy being outside. I enjoy the connection that I get with nature being out, being out there, um, picking the fruit and getting to kind of experience the wildlife and the things that you pick up that you can't learn anywhere else that you wouldn't learn in a book or on the internet that you just have to be out there to learn, um, are pretty awesome. Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks for listening. And we're back. I've had to take a break for a few weeks so that I could focus on the Centralis harvest, but our fruit is in, our ferments are dry, and our wine is in barrel now. And I say our fruit rather than our grapes because this year I picked and fermented prickly pears in addition to grapes to become our wine. As we continually strive to move Centralis in the direction of becoming a more ecologically thoughtful and environmentally beneficial winery, I became convinced that prickly pears need to be an important part of what we do and what we promote as a Los Angeles-based winery. Prickly pears are native to Los Angeles and other parts of the Southwest and have been tended and used here for thousands of years. The entire cactus is useful and edible. And I foraged and picked them this year from natural areas all around Los Angeles, including some within walking distance of my home in South LA. Prickly pears thrive in marginal land without irrigation or chemical inputs of any kind. These are the kinds of fruits that we can build an environmentally positive and ecologically integrated local beverage culture on, a culture that isn't imported, but that represents the unique local flavor of this land. As you can tell, I couldn't be more excited about the potential of incorporating prickly pears into the L.A. wine renaissance. If you've seen the movie The Graduate, I'm like that guy at Ben's graduation party who takes him aside and says, I've got one word for you. Are you listening? Just one word. Prickly pears. Okay, that's two words. But my guest for this episode, Austin Glasscock, shares my enthusiasm. He's making wine from prickly pears and other wild fruit in Sonora, Texas, with his brand new winery called Wild Texas Wines. Austin is a Marine who got into winemaking as a hobby after his military service and found not only a love of fermentation, but a great excuse to get out into the natural world. I was delighted to hear Austin talk about how he gathers fruit by hand, without equipment, and with some serious risk, so as to move through the landscape as an animal would and leave the lightest footprint. I was inspired also by his vision of staying small, wanting only to make a living and maintain a lifestyle that allows him to interact with nature daily. And the most amazing part is how much the wines Austin makes embodies his love of nature in every aspect of his process. The contrast, frankly, to how we tend to make wines here in California is stark. And it makes me thrilled to be able to share this unassuming and understated winemaker's perspective. We get into some pretty detailed technical specifics about making wine from prickly pears, uh, as well as some practical considerations as well. It's a, it's a unique fruit with unique chemistry and some real specialized considerations in the picking and making uh, of the wine. I hope this will be part of a growing body of shared knowledge that others can learn from and add to. I hope that Austin and I and a few others are just the early adopters of what will become a much more popular kind of thinking about making wine ecologically from locally available wild fruit here in the Southwest, where the summers are long, the sun is hot, and the water is more precious than gold. In truth, we aren't early adopters at all. We're just the rediscoverers and revivers of a very old tradition. A special note, 
one important aspect of prickly pear wine that we didn't really go into at all in this interview was how does it taste? Well, in a way, I don't think we yet know how it tastes. Austin is making prickly pear wine in a very different way than we are with Centralis. And in addition to those stylistic differences, these wines are unique in the world. So I don't want to ruin the surprise for you by describing it. You'll just have to taste it for yourself. Enjoy. Yes, sir. Austin, Austin, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you and uh, appreciate you doing this. I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, you have you are originally from Southern California. Is that did I remember that correctly? I'm actually from Central Ohio originally. Central um, Ohio originally. Okay. Got yes, it. I I grew up there, um, and then I spent most of my time in the service in Southern California. Gotcha. So, can you talk a little bit about what you did in the service? What you what you what was your what was your yeah service? yeah. I uh, I graduated high school. I worked for a year in Virginia, and then I joined the Marine Corps um, for five years. And then in my time there, I served as a recon Marine um, as my primary MOS, and then a scout sniper as my secondary MOS. And then uh, did that for five years, and not too long later, here we are. <laughs> so you're still a young guy. Whew for now <laughs> <laughs> but you've had some life experience were, were, did, were you stationed overseas uh i did a deployment um it was about i did two one uh, full length appointment and then a shorter stint um kind of later on that was separate but so probably a total of seven eight months overseas gotcha can you talk about where you were uh <laughs> the we kind of went a lot of places all over the place um from yeah. paycom um to CENTCOM, which is just the South Pacific and then the Middle East, um, where the main areas. Got it. Well, so you were part of like a, a, a special force, special forces. Is that fair to say? I'm, clear, <laughs> I'm clearly ignorant about the military. Um, no, no, that, I you know, feel free to treat me like an idiot. <laughs> no, it just kind of depends on who you talk to. We, as far as the Marine Corps is concerned, um, we're, more specialized overall than any of the other standard units in the Marine Corps. Um, but we don't work specifically for SOCOM, which is stands for Special Operations Command. Got it. Well, I mean, I, I hope somebody thinks you're special. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> um, well, I, I that, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. And thanks for doing that too, um, for being, being part of that service. I, 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 wonder what then steered you can you talk a little bit about when you came back how this process you're now in texas so let's just establish that you're in sonora texas i just looked at a map and if i got on the 10 freeway which is about two minutes from my house and i drove for 18 hours i'd probably be at your front door it's a straight shot on the 10 (laughs) (laughs) yeah only about two turns and you're there (laughs) (laughs) Um, nice well so uh, what's that story how did you how did you go from where you were to where Uh, you are now yeah i uh i got out of the marine corps um i got i applied some colleges my plan was originally to stay in southern california um and then i got accepted to san diego state and studied um aerospace engineering there for a year and a half and then that was kind of when the pandemic was kicking off Everything got locked down, so I needed a, another hobby in my off time. So I looked into the home winemaking, and that's kind of how I got my kick into the winemaking um, 
field, but uh-huh. I uh, it drew me because I like to use I like to do stuff with my hands, but I also like the scientific uh, you know process that goes into making wine. So it's kind of nope. a, the best of both worlds. Yeah, I I thoroughly enjoy that too. You there's a there's a thinking element to it, and there's a physical labor element to it, and I definitely need both in my life. I totally resonate with that. And what's weird about you, <laughs> special I should say, or interesting, <laughs> unique, um, is you you weren't a huge like it, you didn't come at this the way a lot of people do, which is like they they love wine, they fall in love with wine. And, and then that leads them into this, like, how is it made? And I want to make it myself. I want to try my hand at this. You, you weren't a huge wine fan, right? No, no, that's correct. I am not a huge traditional wine drinker. Um, I had a, my grandpa here in Texas used to own a winery. Um, so it's always been intriguing, but I definitely wasn't drawn to the process from the product. <laughs> oh, so it is in your blood, though. Well, there you go. You're kind of faded or (laughs) or cursed depending on how you look at it Uh, (laughs) so is that and that is and your grandfather is kind of how you ended up where you are now right like you're that's the ranch that you are now operating on is that correct uh the one that owned the winery is a different grandpa but um yeah the ranch yeah the ranch we're on now came from uh, my other grandpa my dad's side and uh when he passed away he inherited it and now we're out here Trying to so wait, make a dream come to life. <laughs> <laughs> Both grandpas were from Texas. Is that, did I get that right? Or yes. is the winery? Okay. So you had some interesting yeah. grandparents. Uh, one that was oh, a winery yeah. owner in Texas and another a rancher in Texas. So, or maybe they were both ranchers and one just happened to make wine on the side. <laughs> <laughs> no, the one was primary. He's actually a veterinary, veterinary doctor. He owns a veterinary mm. clinic in the town okay. over. Um, and the winery was kind of a dream of his that he, you know, sought out to do when he was a little bit older. Oh, that's nice. That's really nice. What, do you know what he was growing? Oh, I don't, actually. Are and you... I, I know that he stopped doing the winery because he was having a lot of trouble getting grapes from Texas. Because um, he was a small-scale yeah. guy, and they were selling out his reservation of grapes um, before uh, they, to bigger, bigger sale, sellers. Oh, boy. Yeah, he just... <laughs> I, I just had a little, re, you just re-traumatized me. Don't, don't, <laughs> even, don't even bring that up. <laughs> that's, that's, I know that very well. Uh, <laughs> that, I think that's true for all us micro, small producers uh, trying to get grapes. Um, yeah. Often, often fighting above your weight class, <laughs> punching <laughs> up if you get to try to get grapes. Um <laughs> but uh well so wine in terms of grapes was not your thing and is not your thing but i love that you just started tinkering as a hobby with winemaking and i'm sure you were in you were in southern california at the time so you probably were getting grapes at the time is that right no no grapes fruit? i was oh. exclusively fruit wine experiments fruit wine wow so what what was your first wine uh, I did a few batches, strawberry, um, blackberry, and um, one that was like a kiwi type. Um, and they were real, all like basically no added, just like <laughs> raisins, uh, bread <laughs> yeast. I mean, it was just straight out of the like redneck playbook. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you had in the pantry kind of thing. Yeah. I love that. So how'd this turn out? 
Oh, the strawberry turned out really good. The other ones, eh, not so much. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the raisins were for sugar, I'm guessing. Is that right? They or were no? for uh, yeast nutrient. That's oh. what I read, but they were a, a good yeast nutrient. Interesting. They're probably also a good source of sulfites. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, I yeah. don't know if you, maybe that helped <laughs> with the <laughs> preservation of the wine. Who knows? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and... I mean, did it? Did you get hooked after doing that, or were, like, was it an ongoing process that drew you? I in? did. I oh, wow. did All it, right. and I was like, "This is a good time." Uh, it wasn't, right. you know, it's just fun to experiment with, and then eventually enough mindless thinking, and it rolled into where kind of where we're trying to go now. Right. So, well, the, and we're about to get there. I'm just curious. So. You had a success with strawberry, and I'm guessing a few other failures, like most first-time people who don't have a mentor and are, you know, doing it with like, you know, whatever kind of supervision you could get if you were in a different situation. Was it the failures that inspired you more, or the successes? Like, did you did you fail and be like, you know what, I'm going to do this again, I'm going to get it right, or was it like, oh, the potential is here, like on the good batches, like, oh, when you hit it right, it's yummy and fun. Or, so, yeah. or was it a, it was the good batches it was, that it was the good batches for sure okay <laughs> the bad ones i was like oh man this is gonna be a tough sell just to <laughs> not pour down the drain <laughs> yep <laughs> yep all right so okay you you had reason to leave because your your service was done so you didn't need to be stationed in southern california anymore you're camp pendleton if i remember correctly yeah was yep. your main, main okay so heading heading out to texas you're you're on the 10 uh did you go for the wine or did you go because you wanted to go to texas uh a combination of both i uh so you'd visited you knew that that there was something there with the prickly pears Mm -hmm. i had been here so many times as a kid okay got it i always knew there was a lot and i was like man if there was something when did that idea germinate that went like what what at what moment were you like, oh, you know, I'm making fruit wine and I remember there are all these prickly pears on the ranch? Oh, I don't know. It was probably sometime between Calculus 2 homework <laughs> where I was <laughs> like, wow, man, I really don't want to be doing this for a living. <laughs> <laughs> got it. I gotcha. <laughs> it was like, what? it was the what am I going to do with my life answer yeah. but to that question. Um, that's great. I love that. So... All right, so now let's 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 introduce you our wild Texas wines now. Like you've set this up, you're about to do your grand opening this winter, if I'm correct. Is that right? Looking at your yeah, if things if things go as planned, uh, licensing wise, we should be should be looking to get our first <laughs> batch started this uh, this winter. That's awesome, and and this is a winery at the, on the ranch. So you have a space on the ranch. You're setting up like a tasting room sort of area for on the ranch as well. Uh, no, we're starting off, um, small. So it'll be production only, no tasting room yet. Um, and I'm just going to kind of put out some feelers and see if I can move the product. Um, like I'm hoping. And, uh, if it's successful, um, then I would like to put up a tasting room. Nice. And, uh, you mentioned licensing, you know, I, how, how bad is Texas with licensing? I mean, Texas seems like it's good at all kinds of permits and things like. Yeah. Yeah. It's not bad. Um, I know the, the state filing fee just went 
up quite a bit, but aside from that, there's not near as many loopholes to jump through as there are in California. Do you know what that fee is? No? It is three three thousand. Oh, whoa, that's significantly higher than California. Yeah, wow. it I, was. I, I, I believe thought... it was in the hundreds before, and it just went up this year. Wow, man! I hope no California ABC people listen to this and get any ideas. That's, <laughs> I, this is the one area where we're actually lower cost than Texas. I think we should be proud of that out here. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's like under a thousand now for to get your license. Uh, you know, if a G, I mean, just the fee. I think. Yeah. So, so uh, fascinating. Okay. So let's get into the meat of this. You are, can you talk about the location where you are, Sonora, Texas? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's the ranch isn't far. It's probably five minutes off the 10, but um, we're right on the western edge of the Texas Hill Country. Um, probably the next town over west, um, it turns into just plain old desert. And then if you go east, it starts to get humid and a lot more green. Um, so we're kind of right in the sweet spot of um, a good bit of cedar trees and mesquite trees and cactus and rocks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's not, like your. When does your rainfall come? Does it come throughout oh, I mean, the from, year? Or? If you ask somebody who's lived here the last twenty years, they'll say basically never. But this year's <laughs> this year's been a fluke. It, it's been raining here almost every ten days or so through the summer. Yeah, yeah, through the summer, and then it'll be. Um, it should be kind of the same throughout the winter into the spring. And then normally the summer is the dry time where people go months without any rain, but it's been a weird year for weather out here. Yeah. I mean, the weirding is definitely seems to be getting, I mean, we had an unusually beautiful and mild summer with actually a little rain in July and, and August here in LA, which is basically unheard of for the last I don't know how many years so it's like the way maybe it used to be normal way back when and it's now you know just such a strange thing to have a mild summer it's been crazy I, and yeah anyway the weirding of weather is uh, definitely happening you, you let's talk, but it sounds like you you're right at that edge where it's probably perfect for prickly pears because they're getting enough rainfall to be plump and juicy and be vibrant but it's dry enough that it it's still a good cactus climate oh yeah yeah it's definitely a prime spot for a prickly pear and there's a several other fruit that i'm looking to expand the winery to that grow native out here um oh. hence the name um, yeah so yeah what what are they uh there's talk, a bush talk to them? okay yeah yeah there's a there's a bush called an agarita agarita berry bush um and they grow small blueberry sized fruit that are red and uh very unique flavored and sweet um so i'm hoping to and there's a ton of them out here as many as there are prickly pear at least and then there are uh, no you're good (laughs) you you mentioned you're not like a some uh, a classically trained wine taster (laughs) uh whatever that means i'm not either um but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what is the what, how would you describe those berries i don't know that there's a good comparison other than okay. sweet and very unique um okay i know i'm terrible at this <laughs> hey if there's if there's sugar there's potential alcohol <laughs> exactly <laughs> um all right so the agarita berries 
Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Agri- Agarita but... berries. And okay. then uh, there's a tree out here called the Mexican or Texan, Texas persimmon that grows. Mm-hmm. And they grow yeah. not the traditional persimmon you see in a grocery store, um, which uh-huh. is kind of bit fist-sized. Um, these ones are marble size, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, they're real dark and they're real tart. Um, much more grape-like in flavor than oh. uh, the prickly pear agarita. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I hadn't thought about it, but the, the tannins and things in that are sort of natural and others, if they're in those, would be really good. Yeah. It seems like they'd, they'd help the wine in the same way that, you know, you get sort of wild apples with those tannins and acids that are really high, but they make fantastic cider. Um, that's cool. So it's like a, is it a wild, I, I guess it is if you're doing it, it's a wild persimmon. <laughs> it is, it is. They grow wild out here. Do they, are, is it pretty prolific? Is it, I mean, are there a lot of them enough to. There's a lot, um, not enough to do as many as I have done with the prickly pear but yeah. enough to do some smaller batches with um, the females. The female trees are the only ones that fruit. So it's kind of a toss oh, up. Gotcha. gotcha. So you'd have to almost make them non wild and sort of well, graft I, female you, trees onto rootstock or something to ensure that you've got a whole orchard of them. Yeah. If I wanted to or- make an orchard, I think what I'll probably do is this time next year, I'll go around and I'll, I'll identify, I'll mark all the trees with a, tag them with a little piece of string all the females that way and then mark them on a map so i know where to go to pick them got it okay nice yeah that's that's and let's talk about the ranch what's the terrain like there is it flat hilly you're mild hills um kind of rolling hills but very very rocky a lot of limestone um tons of cactus not just prickly pear but we've got i mean so many cactus i couldn't even name them all um Every, everything out here for the most part has some kind of spiky thorn on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Even mesquite, right. is sort of prickly mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, yeah. They've got some big, like two inch long thorns on them as well. Nice. Rattlesnakes. Yeah. Lots of rattlesnakes, uh, Western diamondbacks and rock rattlers are what they call them out here. They're a little bit smaller, gray colored rattlesnake. And it's um, like, Okay. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Fun. Some, sc- Always some make- scorpions. Yeah. <laughs> Foraging for your prickly pears is all the more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Still on your toes. <laughs> it does. Uh, you've got good boots, right? I do. I have a pair of 18-inch snake boots that are lined with Kevlar. So oh, as long as they okay. bite me below the knee, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Um, do you wear chaps or anything to avoid thorns when you're you know, sashaying mm. through the brush. <laughs> no, no, I, uh, I'm pretty good about walking around any of the other brush without, okay. I try not to, I try not to, I try to leave as small of a footprint as I can. So I don't use any equipment or anything while I'm out there. And I don't like crush any of the other stuff that's out there. I just walk around everything kind of like an animal would. Oh, and why do you do that? Uh, I mean, just trying to practice good stewardship for the property, for the land in general. I think it's a good habit people should be in, um, especially when they're out here managing hundreds of acres um, where people don't really have that opportunity anymore. Yeah. So I think it's kind of a responsibility of landowners or it should be a responsibility of landowners to uh, be good stewards of the land. Yeah. Have you looked into, um, I mean, I, I don't know what you, how much rainfall you have, but 
the more I've studied, the more I realize that my my sense of being a good steward of the land a while ago was sort of like leaving it completely untouched. And now I'm sort of like, oh, you know, like human intervention can actually really benefit everything, like make it more, you know, you know, I, I mean, I guess the benefit is for humans as well, but not not to the detriment of biodiversity or or, you know, just the health of the soil and the landscape that, you know, everything is growing in. Do you, is there a balance there that for that landscape where, you know, some intervention is good and what, what does that look like? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there is, especially when you're running livestock on property like this, um, a long time ago when ranchers first took the land out here they ran basically overgrazed most of the landscape and then kind of changed the whole ecosystem out here. So now there's a lot more stress on like not overgrazing your property, making sure that, you know, all the wildlife's, you know, got a equal chance, you could say. Um, and it's just better yeah. overall for everything. It keeps the dirt, the grass grows when there's not too much livestock. The grass keeps the dirt from blowing away. The dirt holds water and then that benefits everyone. Yeah. And carbon and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. It- so did that inform your decision to want to use prickly pears like, or I mean, or wild fruit in general, or just like, w- was it this sense of, I mean, why not plant vines where you are? It seems like they do great there. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people do plant, a lot of vineyards out here grow grapes that do grow well out here. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoy being outside. I enjoy the connection that I get with nature being out, being out there, um, picking the fruit and getting to kind of experience the wildlife and the things that you pick up that you can't learn anywhere else that you wouldn't learn in a book or on the internet that you just have to be out there to learn um, are pretty awesome. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Uh, I mean, like you can. I love, <laughs> I love that. I, I yeah. mean, I, I think I share that same sentiment. I just wanted to hear more of your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as you can, when you're out there, you pick up on, you know, how the wildlife moves. You pick up on where the plants grow best, where they don't. You pick up on what kind of, what's feeding on what. Um, and it kind of makes you feel like you're more part of the the whole system out there um, as opposed to just, you know, planting some, you know, planting a vineyard out there or just, or planting prickly pear. I could plant prickly pear out here and they would grow and I could row them off. So it was easier to pick, but it's not, that's not really what I'm trying to do out here. Yeah. So it sounds like the process is as important to you as the finished thing. It's the, uh, participating in, in the natural landscape is, is part of what you, is part of the culture that you want to embody with your wine. Yes, absolutely. Where did that come from? That sort of appreciation or, or love of the landscape? Um, I think I grew up in kind of a a really small farm town in Ohio. Um, and I kind of grew up outside a lot in the woods running around and then going from there to Southern California kind of gave you a good contrast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Did you, did, did you appreciate Southern California or did you always kind of want to get the heck out? (laughs) I was never a huge fan. I love the, I love the landscape. I love the, the wild part of the of Southern California. I'm just, as far as everything related to people, I'm not a huge fan of. (laughs) Not a, not a big urban center, urban center kind of person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, 
it's it's an interesting there's a push and pull right because more and more people are moving i mean i was just listening to something where it's like you know right now it's something like you know there's only like 40 percent of the population is rural now and they're predicting by like 2050 that only 20 percent of the population will be rural um but and so clearly like we we need the cities like they they've you know, they support the rural life right now in, in the way that our world is set up. I, I would love to see a return. I, I would love to see that not be true. I would love to see a return to small town life in a way, I, like a revival of small farms and small communities that were self-supporting and self-sustaining and agriculturally based. Um, but I don't know. That's that, Those aren't the predictions from, from the people <laughs> that know a lot more than I do. Um, yeah, no, I think that <laughs> I think that it could definitely... I mean, the potential's there. Um, the problem with agricultural-based communities like we have now is they're part of a big agricultural machine. And uh, right. I, I kind of like to push, you know, that return to, you know, permaculture and kind of yeah. buying, buying local um, and, and encouraging people to utilize the environment to provide for themselves and for the community without destroying it. Where, where did that... Where did those values come from for you? <laughs> I don't know. I I think they just kind of grew. The lot as I grew older, I kind of noticed them more and more. Um, I got a lot a lot of time to think, and I was I just decided basically that I think that that was the best method or best way. Or that's the way people should go about trying to do things. Um, just because it's hard for people, everyday people, to do things to make a difference um, in reality. Um, but they can do some smaller stuff like that, like buying local and making conscious small decisions to, uh, help improve everything. No, really well said. I, I, and I, I know I asked you about this. Um, what, what is, do you see your values reflected around you in Texas in, in, in a lot of other people who are there or, I mean, like what's the culture like that, that you're surrounded by? Um, <laughs> I haven't, I didn't grow up here. Um, per se, my dad grew up right around this area. Um, and his, his grand, so my great grandfather's generation would have been much more along those lines before the oil right. companies came in here and really took hold of everything. Um, and I think what you see here now is what you see in a lot of small towns across the country, which is just, you know, sad to say unfortunately a bunch of big name brand stuff sucking money out of the town and then eventually the town will die as many have and then people move or move to the cities yeah yeah unless more you know people start making prickly pear wine exactly Um. (laughs) (laughs) um what so let's talk about your process so you've already talked about sort of the gathering but but let's talk about the the time you spend doing that and what that actually looks like. What do you you know you know? I mean, I I mean, obviously, I share a fondness for prickly pear wine with you. This is a new thing that we're doing with Centralis as well, and I think it. I mean, for a lot of the same reasons that you've just mentioned. Um, so I I mean, I I didn't I didn't know honestly what your answers to these questions would be, and I I, I think it's really amazing that we both share similar uh ethos about that um and i i really appreciate what why you're doing what you're doing as much as what you're doing um but 
you know, I, I've picked a, picked a few prickly pears this year uh, in a few different landscapes. And, uh, you know, it's one of the tougher picking things that you can pick. So tell me about what that's like for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely uh, it's definitely labor intensive. Uh, basically, what I would do is about the end of July is when we start to get the early out here, at least the end of July, the early fruits start to get ripe. And then they'll continue to ripen all the way until until now. There's still cactus that are ripening up. And they'll basically go out in the morning time when it's cool. That's the lowest chance of seeing a snake is out there in the early morning. And then Got I it. go out and I have a, a little, uh, a little um, basically a, almost a blueberry picker, but it's a handheld little bucket kind of thing. And then a pair uh-huh. of tongs. And then I just walk from cactus to cactus, pick them, fill my little bucket, and then I walk back to the driveway or road, whatever you want to call it, and uh, fill the bigger bucket with them. And then I walk back out. <laughs> and then I repeat that for several months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, how long each day do you go out for? I mean, do you are you out there for hours? Are you out there for like a, an hour? Uh, I'd say three hours on average in the morning. I come in when it starts to get midday, it gets a little too hot out there. Um, and what's early? August, what's early? July. What's an early? What's an early start for you? Like when are you out there? Uh, I try to get out there right after the sun comes up. So, okay. um, in the in the okay. early summer, that's about seven seven thirty. Okay. All right. Um. So it sounds like that's. I mean, which is also some of the picking that I've done on the the, the coastal hillsides here in Malibu and and uh, you know areas like that. It's. I mean just being out there is part of the reason to be picking. I mean, the picking is almost an excuse to be out there. Is that a little bit of what's going on there? I mean, it sounds like that's your daily walk and exercise yeah. as well as, as well as there you're create, you know, you, you've got a task to accomplish, but it, it's like that task is becomes almost an excuse for the experience of being out there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I get a mild workout in, I get to spend several hours outside and I get the task done. So it's definitely yeah. all three win 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 <laughs> yeah um that's great okay so what's the first so you bring those in so you're you're doing this over months um and that's kind of the nice thing about these you you're also i think you mentioned to me earlier you kind of you know, you're always in not necessarily competition but there's there's other people who are picking those prickly pears while you're out there picking them <laughs> or when you're not out there picking them so yeah you everybody's sharing these right so you're there's a there's a good uh, i mean they feed a lot of people basically a lot of a lot of creatures including including yourself and your wine drinkers yeah. that's great um and how, like uh, you know can you what's the breakdown of like who's eating on those and how much do you how much do you get of what's available <laughs> um based on my harvest this year um it looks like the deer, the raccoons, the foxes, and the grasshoppers eat approximately 30% of the fruit that are out there. Um, and then I probably lose another 10 to 15% to these bugs. Um, and I don't know exactly what they're called, but they they spin like a little web and they lay their eggs in the fruit basically. And, and oh, then, the, Are those the cochineal? They have the white powder over the edge? Over the no, there are a few oh. of those out here, um, but they're okay. not as prolific as this other insect, and I don't remember the name. Oh. But they are everywhere, and they they 
take up probably 10 or 15 percent of the fruit and then 10 percent i probably miss or i just don't see because there's so many cactus hidden out here and then the other 40 or 50 percent i'm able to harvest (laughs) (laughs) right okay got it so it's yeah i got you so uh, and do ants, I mean, we have ants out here. Do, do you see ants as a problem? Uh, problem they don't. As one of the other participants. <laughs> they actually don't. Surprisingly, they won't crawl up onto the cactus and eat the fruit. But as soon as the fruit hit the ground, they'll be all over it. Oh, well, we must have some bold ants out here then. <laughs> um, all right. So you bring in your the pears. Um, can you describe what that's like what i mean what what are they like are you ever do you sample them when you're out there do you have like a knife that you kind of peel them off or or do you just kind of wait till you get in do you are you tasting to see like oh this is ripe or this one's not ripe what what are you doing in um, terms of well, how do you know when to pick them well <laughs> when i first started it was a lot of trial and error i was cutting fruit open to make to test and um to see how long after they were picked um like how fast they would ripen up off the fruit or off the cactus. And then uh, basically, because at this point I've harvested almost 30,000, 40,000 tunas. So I've gotten the exact color and and like texture of the skin that I can just look at a fruit and be like, that one's ripe. Yeah. And then basically once I've got the whole load in from the day, I'll, uh, I'll let them sit uh netted i'll put a bug net over them and i'll let them sit throughout the day and that helps any ones that were on the less ripe side that i may have picked ripen up and then come in it lets the heat of the day go by before i have to go back out and burn them and bag them um okay well let's talk let's talk about that you burn them and bag them so (laughs) um (laughs) so you've got a big pile of thorny fruit now, do you put them onto like a sorting table or what's, what's your, what, where, where do you, where do they go next from this big pile? I do. I, I basically built a homemade table that, um, is covered in metal grate that I can roll the fruit around on. And then I actually have a huge spoon that I made from a wine barrel stave, um, that I used, <laughs> that I used to roll the fruit around and, uh, uh-huh. I pour them onto this table. I take a big propane burner and I burn them one way and then I use my spoon and I move them around. I burn them again. Um, and then the whole table hinges and I dump them into a tank of water where they get rinsed. Now for, for people who don't know why you're doing these things. (laughs) Um, so if I'm, if I'm right and I've, I've seen this technique, I just thought it was labor intensive. So I'm guessing this torch that you're using is, is something like people might get in a city as a, uh, uh, herbicide free weed killer like yeah, they sell that, the, these things it's like a super high hot torch but it's got kind of a wide mouth mm-hmm, and you can singe things basically it's like yeah okay go ahead sorry no no that's that's right they're marketed traditionally as a weed burner um but right, they're great okay. for burn they call them pear burners out here <laughs> <Pear>. <laughs> that's great so how many people are doing this then? There's like a name, they call it a pear burner. It sounds like there's a little local culture of uh, doing this. There's definitely a local culture um, with the prickly pear, but okay. because it's so labor intensive, people don't do very much stuff to scale. Um, right. And they do a lot of homemade jellies out of it. They do candy, all kinds of other stuff. Right. Well, I, I definitely want to come back to the labor intensive and how that works out economically. But 
let's finish this process. Okay, so you're on like a, a wire mesh table so that any any thorns can sort of fall through. Is there anything underneath to collect those or do you just sort of not walk under the table ever kind of? Vibe? Yeah, no, they just fall on the <laughs> ground. They blow away in the wind. They're, they're light enough. <laughs> I oh I believe me I've done some things where they've blown <laughs> onto me and have you have you had that where you've just like the wind shifts and you're like and now I'm covered with thorns yes yes it took me <laughs> it took me a couple of weeks to figure out that I need to pick and dump them upwind <laughs> right <laughs> yep that's awesome um, because and this is what I, I think I was getting at with for those who aren't familiar with the pairs not only are there you know, visible thorns that, you you know, in, in some cases, and it depends on the variety. Sometimes those thorns are bigger or smaller and, you know, more gnarly, more intense uh, or less so. Um, but all of them have what's called a glochid or the, and they're like the little dots that you see on the pair. And those little dots have hair-like thorns, basically, that you can't even really see with the naked eye unless you have really good near vision. Um, but as soon as you touch it, you'll start to feel that because they're sort of like barbed micro hairs that just work their way into your skin. And that's what you're essentially, in addition to the big thorns, you're burning off those things. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Um, yeah. And the skin is pretty tough. So you're not really, well, maybe, you are. I mean, do you, do you think you're changing the flavor of the fruit at all? Um, I don't think so. I, uh, I think that what it does a good job of is killing any of the wild yeast that may be on there. Um, it helps okay. eliminate those early because they harbor so much wild yeast naturally. And so, I mean, my 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 thinking about that, because I kind of come from a, a natural winemaking, you know, approach to winemaking was I, I wanted to preserve that. So I didn't I I've been trying to figure out a way to not have to torch or rinse the these pears. So I've just mashed them whole. Of course, I'm using a variety that doesn't have huge thorns on it. Um, but you, you are of the mind, like this gives you a chance to sort of sterilize them and then have a controlled fermentation with an inoculated yeast. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, okay. doing it. my best to get consistency, um, which right. is the only thing that makes me nervous with the wild yeast. Right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of things besides just Saccharomyces, uh, that live <laughs> in the wild, um, <laughs> that... <laughs> And and the chemistry of these fruit is very, uh, I would say, uh, what's, what's the, it's volatile in terms of winemaking because you have very little acid. It's just like the pH is, our pH when I measure it was like 535 or something like that. Like, And anybody that's in winemaking knows that, you, you know, you're harvesting grapes, you know, between three and four pH. Um, so five is like way, way high, very low acid. Uh, and, and because of that, it, you're kind of unprotected from a lot of things like the, that acid in grapes gives you a lot of helpful protection and preservation. Um, so w what are you doing then after the, the bath? Well, like how, what's your process and how do you, how are you vinifying these guys? They'll, uh, I'll burn them. They'll get bagged. Then they go into, uh, deep freezers for storage. Um, and then because of the scale of the operation we're doing here, I pull out, you know, as many as I need per batch. Um, I'll let them thaw out. Um, and what the freezing the does, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. You're gonna, you're about to say what I was going to ask. Yeah. And what the freezing does is not only help us for storage because I don't have the size of the tanks needed to do all of this at one time. It also 
ruptures the cell walls inside the fruit, um, which allows us once they thaw to put them into a pot, boil them, and then the process of osmosis kind of helps us out with extracting the juice and the flavor from the fruit. And what we're left with is basically a pale, shriveled up, looks almost like a grape, but a prickly pear grape. You mean when you get them out of the freezer, they're they're pale and shriveled up? No, no, they'll uh, they come out of the freezer and they're still good right. looking. When, um, when are they shriveled up? I'll put them into the boiling the pot um, once they oh. thaw. Okay, so now you're cooking them too after yeah, basically them out of the freezer. Okay. And you're, you're boiling them or you're, you're, yeah. So, and what is that doing? Um, that helps kill off anything that the burn or the freeze didn't kill. So now we should be almost entirely sterile. Um, it pulls the fruit or the juice and the flavor out of the fruit. Um, and then and we basically you... strain it out of there and we're ready to ferment. Okay. So you're straining at that point, uh, through, I'm guessing cheesecloth into, like in a big colander type thing or what do you do? How are you doing that? Yeah, no, that's okay. exactly right. All right. And, uh, so you're, you're, you, none of the skin is going into the fermentation. That's correct. Okay. Got it. All right. This is fascinating. Now, where did you learn to do all that? Is that something that is in your local, you know, culture as well? You've seen other people do this? No, this was a lot of experimenting. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah no, there's that's definitely a unique just, process. Yeah, yeah. And it just kind of the process fell into place um, with experimenting and then also working it into scaling up an operation based on wild fruit. That's so unique. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what, so, okay, so the, the reality uh, that I would see that somebody, you know, who is a, maybe more of a, a capitalist than I am <laughs> and would comment more uh, <laughs> critically is that this would be very hard to scale. Uh, you know, I mean, especially with your being the forager harvester as, as solely, as well as this sort of, uh, I mean, I can envision bigger equipment doing this, you know, and having like tables of, you know, blow torches lined up that they go through on a conveyor <laughs> belt. I mean, I can envision it, but it does seem like a lot of, it's a big process, right? Like there's a lot to do. It's labor intensive. Um, yeah. I mean, just pick, picking them is, is a delicate thing. Like, as we've already mentioned, it's not something you can rush uh, or without getting harmed, um, <laughs> basically. And, and then, you know, you, you might be able to shortcut some of the process. And I know that, you know, there are places where these, these are, you know, done at an industrial level. Um, but you, you don't, it doesn't sound like you have an intention to go there. Is that true? No, that's, that's accurate. Um, I am, uh, trying to keep it small, um, and to, to try to scale up unless it was a massive operation, I wouldn't get the benefits of economy from, of scale, um, from a mid-sized operation and it would be too hard to fabricate all the equipment and hire all the people that you would need to forage all of this um to make it something that would be realistic yeah so my goal is to keep it small um basically just enough to make a living and enjoy what i do <laughs> nice yeah i mean what, do you, what scale do you think that is i mean so I'm I'm just going to throw it out there that based on the amount of work that goes into this and the the life threatening rattlesnake uh, you know prickly pear thorn gathering 
harvest that's involved, I would bet you're selling this for like 150 a bottle. Is that, <laughs> is that no. maybe too? <laughs> no, no. I uh, I am trying to keep it between in the national average, um, and I'm looking to sell it between 20 and 25 dollars a bottle. Wow. I mean, I just want so. people to understand how precious this stuff is um, and what a deal it is, <laughs> what a value it is to be able to buy that at that level. Um, that's fantastic. So I and I we, we didn't finish the, the winemaking process. I, if you you so you've got it, you've strained it, you've got the juice, you've got it in a in a your your tank, your biggest tank. And uh, if I'm correct, you're adding sugar and yeast. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm adding sugar and yeast. Um, and do you know what your bricks are at that point before you add sugar? Like what your your sugar content is? I don't. I couldn't say off the top of my head. Um, I know that I'm shooting for something that's going to put me at twelve to thirteen percent, roughly. Um, Alcohol. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Finished product. Okay. Got it. Do you have a favorite yeast that you use? Or are you still experimenting? Uh. I'm still experimenting. Uh, I think I've narrowed it down to to what I want to use, which is either the MA33. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, it sounds familiar, it's just, but I'm not. it's it's primarily for fruit wines. Um, okay, okay. And then the uh, Red Star Classic, I believe that's what it's called. Um, okay, I think they changed the name recently, but now are you? doing a lot of note taking you know of your chemistry <laughs> and that kind of stuff or are you somebody who kind of follows the same process but doesn't care too much about the those those kind of details like, are you um, testing, t- testing for anything you know are you sending this off to labs or anything or do you have no no <laughs> a <laughs> makeshift lab maybe but um right. no 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 formal um testing as far as the like chemistry process goes, um, uh-huh. I did a lot of the smaller scale experimenting kind of already as far as how I wanted to, what I wanted to use, what worked well, what didn't. Um, and I'm hoping we're actually doing our first full scale test batch um, this coming month. So hopefully everything goes smooth from start to finish and uh, the finished products, what we're looking for. Nice. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Um and so I, I looked at your website. Let's talk about those finished products. Um, not only your, you, I mean, your commitment to Wild Texas Wines is, you know, I mean, if, if it hasn't come through already, is clearly uh, like f- a full commitment. And I love that you're also using mesquite as a sort of a, a wood flavoring agent. Can you talk about how you use it? Because you're you're obviously in a you're in a big vat. Um, how are you aging? The, these these wines yeah i'm uh, i'm initially we're initially in a 40 41 gallon um vat and then uh once we do our first rack then i basically inst- i moved to carboys um just because the scale we're at here is so small that i can get away with using glass carboys um and it helps me keep the consistency where i want it and i can't get mesquite barrels anywhere because <laughs> they don't exist um <laughs> yet so i basically <laughs> yeah yet <laughs> i use uh slivers of mesquite slab um, which is just a, a big milled mesquite tree that's been air dried or kiln dried for however many years um so i get the real good heartwood out of the mesquite and then that's yeah, what we use in uh me- basically measured and weighed um slats that will 
sit in the carboy with the wine um, for a prescribed amount of time. And are you are you uh, charring them at all? Toasting them with fire? Um, I they... had done some exper some experimenting yep. which with the charred, um, and I I ended up preferring the uncharred. So they're actually just the air dried mesquite. What does that impart to the to the wine? I would say a smoothness that you can't get without that. Okay. Um, there's definitely a sweet spot where too much and you get way too much of a, of a weird flavor with the wood um, and too okay. little and you don't get quite the smoothness that you want. So are, are we talking it's in there for weeks or months or years? No, no. <laughs> okay. Um, and that's the beauty of using slivers over a barrel is the square inch, the exposure of wood to gallons of wine is much larger than you would get in a traditional wine barrel, which allows us to do the aging in a such in a lot shorter process, at least with the wood. Um, Got that it. won't speed up our clarification process at all, but um, the wood aging specifically is much shorter, just a couple weeks. Got it. Okay. Got it. Now I noticed that both of them have a little uh, sweetness to them. One's off dry and one's semi sweet. So that I I mean, how are you processing it? So are are you then adding sweetness to the wine at the end and filtering like how how are you keeping I, I don't know you know i know it's more difficult to make a sweet wine than a dry wine because you've got microbes microbes that want to eat that sugar once you anytime there's sugar in the wine so what are you doing to make that happen um the yeast that i'm using i'm trying to get the attenuation so a bit lower than traditionally um which allows us to have a little bit of residual sugar but the yeast dies off from the ABV or dies off or runs its course basically. Um, oh, okay. So I don't do any, any, any back sweetening. Nice. So will, I mean, I guess if you're using the same yeast under the same conditions, you should be able to replicate that. But have you had any issues with consistency as far as that goes? No, um, it hasn't been. And keep in mind, we haven't done enough rounds at full scale for me to say accurately if we're going to have consistency <laughs> issues. <laughs> But we can always um, just make various levels of sweetness wine, you know, like something yeah. for everybody, depending on what happens and, with, the, with the batch. Yeah. And if we have consistency issues, that's something that is easy to fix. And that's the beauty of being smaller at scale is I don't, if I have a batch that came out weird or something, I don't lose thousands of bottles. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so have you had any failures? Early on, um, knock on wood, hopefully... Our full-scale test batch next month, we won't have any issues. <laughs> nice. What what was what went wrong at first? Um, or with the batch was, that went wrong? I don't know that I'd say it went wrong. It just the the finished product based on what the variable that we adjusted wasn't quite what we were looking for. Whether it was the whether we it was when we aged it with oak wine barrel wood versus the mesquite. Um, or different concentrations of the fruit juice or the type of sugar we used. <laughs> right. What is your least favorite part of winemaking? <sighs> the paperwork. <laughs> oh. And that doesn't even fall in really to the category. That's more business. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I think the yeah, actual. Can... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Let's limit to the actual, uh, the labor. Um, the waiting. <laughs> uh, I think too. the waiting's the worst part. You and I are like brothers from another mother. It's funny. We're, um, I would have said paperwork and first, and then probably waiting. <laughs> My patience is 
I'm the worst personality for a winemaker. Um, and then my probably third is the cleaning. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> especially if you're using carboys. Oh, my God. The carboys that I have to clean. The number of carboy cleanings that I have to go through in a year. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's worse for you, so I, sh- I shouldn't complain. I probably have it easy. Um, well, so... Uh, all right. I've, I think I've asked you a little bit about everything I wanted to ask you. Is there, you know, where do you see this going? You just, I mean, I think you talked a little bit about this, but um, you're you're going to expand to some other wild fruit there. Uh, you are going to hopefully be able to make a living doing this. And, um, you know, anything else? Um, I mean, long term, it would be nice to do a similar idea in all in different places all around the country with local fruit um, that was that we were able to harvest without, you know, putting a dent in the natural ecosystem. Um, yeah. So if that's, if that's something we're able to, I would like to do that in some other States um, just to help bring people closer to their, where they live. So you mean like the, the idea of having a, a local beverage that is, Literally, you know, like grown there, made there from indigenous uh, fruits that are from there, that do well there, that don't have to be, you know, cultivated with a bunch of chemicals or, you know, that that they that they are abundant in a, in a natural habitat. Is that the idea? Absolutely. That's uh, yeah. that's exactly right. I love that. I share that vision. <laughs> um <laughs> That's that's fantastic. Why why prickly pears? I mean, why like it's just because they were there and they were there were a lot of them. I mean, if you if you if your grandfather had had a ranch in upstate New York, you might be into apples. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I love it. Or actual yeah. other the or pear pears as opposed to prickly pears, <laughs> non prickly pears. Yeah, smooth pears. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Well, how how can uh, how can we stay in touch and uh, find out more? How can anybody learn more and follow along with your journey and and uh, hopefully soon taste some of this unique stuff? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can jump on the website wildtexaswines.com. You can follow me on Instagram at wildtexaswines. Um, and I'll kind of keep both of those, those are plural, with... right? Both plural. <laughs> uh, wild yes. wild Texas yeah. wines. Wine. Okay, yes. got it. Wines, got it. Yes, sir. And then, sorry, you I cut you off. I apologize. No, yeah. And then uh, I'll kind of keep everyone posted on the process, start to finish on the Instagram, and uh, keep updating the website as things progress. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation. It's near and dear to my heart, and uh, I couldn't imagine having a better conversation with somebody who's doing it about this than with you. Uh, It's it's really been a treat. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, it's, it's been awesome. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time and attention. And if you'd like to try some prickly pear wine, we are going to have a very limited supply at Centralis. So, please sign up for our email list or join our wine club. You can do that at centraliswine.com, C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S, wine.com. It's the best way to get access to our, what's going to be very limited supply of some very interesting wine. That's centraliswine.com.